Hey, and welcome to City Hall Stories. I'm Jack English, and I think local governments have some of the most interesting stories that exist. Almost everything we do on a regular basis is affected by local government decisions, and this provides a massive opportunity for real change if we better understand how it works and how to affect it. I hope the incredible humans you hear from in this podcast inspire you to look closer at your own local government and become a part of the solution. Dave Amos runs City Beautiful, the most popular YouTube channel in the world that focuses specifically on urban planning and design. Amassing over 40 million views, his videos draw from his PhD to introduce regular folks to concepts of livable and healthy communities. Today we discuss things that local government leaders can do right now to address the climate emergency, why more freeway lanes are not the answer, and why the US can't look to Europe for all of its urban planning answers. Please enjoy my conversation with Dave Amos. Dave, this is a conversation I've been really looking forward to having. I think you're a huge success in presenting what, at first glance, might seem like a a pretty academic subject, urban planning. Illustrates that a lot of people think we should and and probably can do better when it comes to designing our living spaces. To begin, can you talk us through how you began to have an interest in this field and and why you ultimately decided to turn to a, a public forum like YouTube to share your thoughts? Yeah, so when I was a kid, there was no such thing as YouTube. So I was not able to watch YouTube videos to sort of get interested in city planning. When I was in high school, a teacher had given me a book called Natural Capitalism. And in it, there was a chapter about Curitiba, Brazil, and Jamie Lerner and all of the innovative work he was doing around city planning in that city. For an impressionable 17-year-old, that sounded amazing that people could you know rethink how cities were designed. It could lead to improving the lives of everyone living in that city. And that seemed like a really powerful concept. And I like the idea of sort of that kind of public service. I went and got my undergraduate degree in urban studies at Cornell. Uh, Eventually went and got a master's degree in architecture and planning at uh, Oregon. And then became a consultant land use planner in California. So I would work with cities on doing their comprehensive plans, what we call general plans in California. And uh, it was a great experience. And one of the tasks I had as a planner was I had to address boards and commissions and give them a little bit of educational background on planning because, believe it or not, many elected officials or board-appointed officials don't actually know the first thing about city planning. So we would often have to brief them on concepts like complete streets or healthy communities or uh, some uh, issues around zoning. And I always wished that there were just YouTube videos I could point them to and say, just go watch this video uh, so I don't have to you know, spend a couple hours of my day putting together the slideshow and then present it to you. But none existed, at least not in any sort of methodical way uh, back in, you know, this was like 2013 or so. Anyway, that was always in the back of my mind. Like, there's just not a lot of city planning content on YouTube. And after I went back to get my PhD in city planning, I was teaching an intro class, uh, Intro to City Planning. And I thought, wow, a lot of this content would be super interesting to the general public, not just my students. And it would actually sort of fill that gap that I had seen when I was a planner. So I thought, okay, well, I'll try to make a video, see how it goes. It took me four months to make one video. <laughs> it took me a really long time because I'm not a, a filmmaker at all. I'm a city planner. Uh, but I made a goal to keep going and try to publish one video a month. And I've been doing that for now almost five years. And that's sort of how I got into it. And I did not think that people would be interested in this topic as much as they were. But I was really just aiming for you know, trying to give people context about the places they live. And I guess enough people were interested that I could keep going and keep doing it. 
and throughout that experience, your educational experience, your professional experience, and, and then onward to actually making content about it, have your views on what makes a city livable and, and beautiful, to use your word, changed or remained pretty constant throughout that period? I think that that's a good question. So I think that my views haven't changed so much. I will say that I've learned a lot. I started uh, learning about city planning about 20 years ago. What we are talking about today is different than what we were talking about 20 years ago. And the some of the challenges are a little bit different. I think things like climate change are much more in the forefront of our discussion than they were 20 years ago. Understanding the impacts of car-oriented development, while they were known in 2001, are sort of even more uh, well-known now. So it's not so much that my views have changed, but the conversation continues to evolve around cities. And it's been really fascinating to see. I think what's great is that it seems like right now we're at a really interesting inflection point. I think more and more people are starting to snowball are beginning to realize that actually we can design better cities that are more equitable, just, sustainable, verdant, uh, all those great things. And that city planning, you know, it's a series of choices and not just some sort of inevitable process that people don't have a say in. So I'm just really excited to be at this moment, but I'm also happy to have sort of like this 20-year time span now to see how things have changed and move towards this direction. Was the plan always to kind of remain in, in academia and, and I guess previously more of a consulting role? Did you ever get drawn into actually being involved or working for a city or a county specifically? Is there a reason that local government never drew you in? When I was, after my undergraduate degree in planning, I just got an, another job in the nonprofit sector. So that wasn't really a, a good reason why I didn't go into planning. And after my master's degree, when I got a, a degree in planning, I absolutely wanted to work for local government. But that was, we were just coming out of the Great Recession. So there, the opportunities for jobs, there weren't many of them. I was open to working for a city government or a consulting agency. And I think it's important to understand that working for a consulting agency means that you are working for local government, just sort of one step removed. I worked with public sector clients. I worked with city governments all the time. Uh, I got to work with multiple city governments, uh, which was really fascinating to see the differences between them. Um, I thought that the consulting world actually sort of gave me a uh, more broad education than maybe just working for one city. You know, for me, it wasn't, there wasn't a distinct choice between going public or going to the consulting world. And honestly, they both really address the same issues. It's just a little bit of a difference about who you're working for and sort of what problems you're tackling. So I don't consider consulting to be sort of an academic pursuit. It was very much in the profession. Um, I'm an AICP certified professional. You know, I, I consider myself to have, have practical practitioner experience. <laughs> and as for going back to get my PhD, uh, I just had a really great time as a master's student doing research, I found that research really suited me and I really enjoy teaching. And those are two things, you know, it's, you don't get the opportunity to do as much when you're a planner. So I, I went back with the goal of becoming a professor and that's where I am now. Now that we've filled in your background, let's get yeah. into, let's say the nitty gritty, the core mm -hmm. issues, some of them at least today with, with living in urban spaces, you know, congestion, high living costs, long commutes, homelessness, bad infrastructure, all of the above demonstrate that the situation we have now that the status quo of urban planning is a little bit dysfunctional. Would you be able to, and I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but would you be able to lay out some of those factors uh, that have put us in the position where we are today? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it's hard to, I just want to say, it's, first of all, it's hard to generalize the problems facing cities, even in one country like the United States. In upstate New York, a lot of the problem is uh, industrial disinvestment, right? Like once prospering communities are now trying to figure out how to fill in that gap and find those jobs. Uh, while in a place like California, where I am now, 
a lot of the problems are around growth happening too fast and planners feeling like they have to play catch up and figure out ways to mitigate uh, the effects of things like sprawl. So there's a lot of different problems and different contexts, but I, I will say that the field of city planning historically has been uh, a very human and political endeavor. And a lot of the choices that we were making in the past, they were making based on their best information and with the priorities presented to them by their local governments and communities. We now know better about some of those decisions. So things like suburbanization and sort of the rapid adoption of the automobile. It made a lot of sense to planners in the post-war years. Cars offered unprecedented freedom of mobility. People liked living in single-family houses. And at that time, it seemed like the land would go on forever and we'd have you know, unlimited resources, essentially. And today we know that there are negative impacts associated with that growth and development pattern that, uh, you know, either they didn't know about or just didn't seem to care about. That's always the trick about planning is you're, you're doing a lot of work trying to project into the future while still trying to meet the needs of today. A lot of the work that planners do today is sort of mitigating some of those bad decisions made by planners of the past while also trying not to make those same mistakes for future generations. Uh, so uh, to get to it, I, you know, suburbanization, the, the rise of the automobile as a primary mobility source and sort of redesigning our cities to cater to that, I think is a major impact in what we're dealing with now. I think we're also seeing, you know, have the, the rise of NIMBYism, not in my backyard, where people buy a house and they want their neighborhood to stay exactly the way it was when they bought the house. Um, and any change is perceived as detrimental. Part of that is because people, when they buy a house, that is a major investment. People view it as a financial investment. And indeed, home ownership is the primary form of wealth accumulation in the United States. So it's a big deal, right? You want your home value to stay stable or grow. Kind of naturally makes people lowercase c conservative around growth and change in their communities. So that's that's something that we are dealing with uh, as planners a lot because cities in the United States, at least, in many places continue to grow. We need to accommodate those new residents but it makes it difficult when people don't want to see any, any change. Uh, that's a problem. Uh, I also want to pivot a little bit to talk about zoning. And that goes a lot with our discussion of suburbanization. So the idea of separating uses didn't make any sense prior to the car because many people had to be within walking distance or transit distance of their work. And now with the car, you know, it's very easy to drive 20 minutes and have a completely separate residential area and a completely separate commercial area. But that separation of uses has sort of reinforced the car-oriented development and made it very difficult to switch back to one that is not uh, entirely dominated by the car. Lots of different factors. It's it's a really interesting question. I feel like you know you could write multiple books on the answer, but those are some of the highlights, I think, <laughs> hopefully, I, without rambling too much. No, absolutely. Super insightful. And during that answer, you mentioned that we're currently dealing with a lot of issues that arose from previous urban planning, I guess, best practices. Being that local government is a very slow ship to turn around, in your opinion, are there practices that are currently industry best practices or industry standard that given 10, 20, 50 years, you think we might look back on as maybe an error? That's an interesting question and one I think about a lot because I teach aspiring uh, prospective city planners in my job as a professor. So I'm often thinking about sort of how can we best equip these students to tackle the challenges of today and preserve, you know, a future for tomorrow. You know, in in my mind, the real crisis we're facing is just not acting fast enough. We are in a climate emergency right now. We're using the phrase climate emergency very uh, distinctively because it sort of highlights the real trouble we're in. 
And we're just not moving fast enough to curb carbon emissions in urban areas. I think we're also facing crises around uh, car use. The fact that over 30,000 people die each year in car-related collisions is something that's absolutely preventable. And I think that future planners will judge this generation harshly if we don't get that under control. So it's not so much we don't know the answers or going the wrong direction. I just think that we're not going in the right direction fast enough. That's the real crisis. And I think by and large, you know, I'm a city planner. I'm very pro-planner. I think most city planners out there sort of know the right answers. Like we, again, we know that right direction, but they're not getting that support at the local level to make sure city government can pivot to those right decisions and move faster. So that means that, you know, community members need to kind of make sure they're electing uh, city councils and board of commissioners that kind of support these policies to get us where we need to go faster. So let's stick on that idea of not acting fast enough. And it's something that is a pretty common sentiment from outsiders toward really all aspects of local government, not only planning. Why are we so slow? Is it valid risk assessment that needs to take place? Is it a lack of courage? Is it really simply nimbyism? And I guess, is there validity to that really cautious approach? I think there's a certain reason for being deliberate. Right, we don't want to be rash. We want to make sure that we've consulted as many people as possible before making critical decisions around a city's, you know, direction and vision for itself. Absolutely, like we need to make sure community outreach is robust and what the decisions we're making reflect the will of the community. Now, um, that doesn't always happen, and I often view um, urban policy as uh, a giant boulder. And everybody's pushing on all different directions, right? Like they're trying to push the boulder to the direction they want it to go. And, you know, sometimes people, uh, you know, maybe in the, in the real estate community are pushing it harder and it goes in one direction while, you know, environmentalists push it harder in another direction. And, and sometimes the result is the boulder actually doesn't get very far from where it started. So that's why we don't often sort of see the change happening rapidly. There's just so many different stakeholders trying to get their own agendas enacted, right? So that's that's the challenge. So I think one of the ways that we can sort of push that boulder in the right direction and maybe make it not so much a boulder and have it go faster is through education and having people understand, again, what the history of the decisions we've made as, as planners before and what that's led to and what we think the outcomes will be if we start moving in the right direction faster. I think in places like California, who are sort of experiencing the effects of climate change right now through things like wildfires and floods and all sorts of things, it's an easier case to make these days, right? Like we're sort of experiencing the negative effects. Like uh, we have smoke season here because it gets so smoky in August and September now. The idea that we need to reduce our carbon emissions becomes more apparent because we're sort of dealing with the outcomes. It requires more education if you're in a place that sort of is not seeing those outcomes just yet. So I think in the long term, we're just going to start feeling the the negative consequences of our decisions and it will want us to make want to make us move faster in the right direction. Hopefully we can move fast enough. You've laid out pretty well so far the issues with our current situation, excess carbon use, unhealthy modes of transportation, high costs of living. Let's now move over to more of the aspirational ideal. Is there a country in the world that, for example, the US can look to for best practices? You know, we often hear about Scandinavia and similar countries as models, not only in, in healthcare, but also urban design. Are there lessons that we can take today from those types of countries? Or are their situations so unique, so different from a country like the US that it's almost a pointless endeavor? 
I think that there's absolutely a value in looking to other countries just to get us out of our mindset. This is the way it's always been. And this is the way it always has to be here. I know when I was an undergraduate, I got to do a study abroad in Rome. And that was hugely influential in my thinking because it was the first time I got to live in a city center where I just outside my front door was just the city of Rome, right? Not a, you know, busy thoroughfare choked with cars, but just, you know, a restaurant and a bar and some Vespas is great. And I think that having that experience makes made me realize, wow, there are different ways of living than the one we're experiencing in the United States. So that is super useful. But I think as you allude to, the history of development in other countries is very different than the United States in many cases. So it's difficult sometimes to take some of their strategies and apply them one-to-one in the United States because we just don't have the same past. So for example, Denmark, the Netherlands, Paris right now is doing amazing things around active transportation. And that's fantastic. And we absolutely can use some of the lessons that they're, they're teaching us. But they have also had centuries of dense urban development that the United States doesn't have. So when they do something amazing for transit or for bikes, it's supported by the land use that's been there for centuries. And here in the United States, we could implement the same bike lane, but we're not going to see the same ridership if all of the destinations and origins are like three miles apart instead of you know a quarter mile apart. As a city planner, we often stayed away from using any European case studies. Like we found that people here in the U.S., like your average everyday citizen, doesn't want to hear about what Europe is doing because they intuitively understand that we are not Europe and our land use patterns are different. And that wouldn't make a lot of sense here. So we often have to look best practices within the United States, within Canada, or, or places with similar land use patterns to get our point across. And one of your most popular videos is exactly that. It's a bit of a, an investigation as to Vancouver specifically and, and why it is such a unique and, and beautiful place to live. Do you mind sharing why you decided to make a video on specifically Vancouver and if there are any best practices or lessons that uh, urban planners across North America can take from that specific city? That's a great question. <laughs> That's funny. Like, so I, I've made just about 100 videos. So now any video, like a, two years in the past, I have to like really think about what was in that video. <laughs> uh, all right. Um, no, no, no. So I visited Vancouver for a few reasons. First of all, my advisor in my PhD program, spent a lot of time in Vancouver and spoke very highly of it. And I had heard about Vancouver being just an amazing place for a long time. I I did my graduate studies at the University of Oregon, so kind of in that same region of the world. And I just always wanted to visit there. And I heard so many great things about bikeability and its different land use patterns and things. So um, I had the opportunity to go a couple of years ago and spend a few days there and explore it for myself. And it truly was amazing and a very different take on North American city living. One of the key differences between Vancouver and other cities was just the incredible residential density in its urban core. So there were so many people and so many families, quite honestly, living close in, in the False Creek area and uh, near downtown. And, and they'd really designed the city to accommodate that, like for people of all generations, in a way that you don't see in U.S. cities. And, and a lot of U.S. cities or Canadian cities that aren't Vancouver, they went through a hard time of suburbanization where a lot of the city was emptied out. You saw a white flight as like kind of white middle and upper class residents fled to the suburbs, uh, howling out central cities. And, you know, in the last couple of decades, we've seen a resurgence of, of downtowns. We've seen more people move in. And you saw, you know, the initial sort of re, reemergence of downtown coming from empty nesters, uh, young professionals, kind of the early gentrifiers of cities, but not so much families. It takes a long time 
for cities to become sort of more family oriented. But Vancouver seemed to understand that from the get go that they needed to attract everyone, including families. And you just see amazing car free districts, really well connected path systems, amazing parks, urban schools all the infrastructure needed to raise a family in a city. And I think that was just really special and something that I'd never seen a city in in this part of the world do as well as they have done. Both my native country, New Zealand, and in the US, median house prices in the past, I don't know, year or so, have just gone pretty wild, uh, making home ownership less and less of a reality, especially for, I guess, millennials and Generation Z and below. Is the ideal of, of home ownership, is that something that we're going to collectively, uh, as a group of generations, come to terms with that it, it may not be a reality for us? Uh, should we get used to potentially more dense and more transient modes of living in such, as you just mentioned, some of those downtown areas rather than hoping to get a, a quarter of an acre in a suburb? It's it's not a simple question. So. In other countries, like you know, in Germany, I believe like the city of Berlin, something like seventy percent of residents are renters. Uh, while nationally here in the United States, about sixty sixty five percent of Americans are homeowners. So it doesn't have to. We don't have to live in a society that is home ownership based if we don't want to. I ever think everybody would agree that Germany is doing just fine for itself, being a, a society primarily composed of renters. Now, the, the trick of that, uh, we can't just switch into a primarily renter-oriented society if we don't think about the financial aspect. And like I mentioned, homeownership is one of the primary forms of wealth accumulation for people in the United States. People get a lot of value from their homes. And after a 30-year fixed mortgage, they essentially, you know, their, their housing costs go down significantly because they're not paying that mortgage anymore. You know, in order for us to be okay with primarily switching over to a renter-based society, we have to look at other ways to ensure that people are um, accumulating well, we're saving for retirement, and generally sort of having other opportunities to, you know, maybe invest in in mutual funds or the stock market or things like that. Um, You can't just say, you know, we're not going to be homeowners anymore. Uh, You're not going to have that opportunity to, to build wealth. It's a little bit more complicated and it gets more into like finance and, and things. But that's it's an interesting question. And it's you might ask, like, well, why are we primarily a homeownership based society? And, and that's there's a lot of sort of moral reasons. Like it goes all the way back to the to the nineteenth century where we we collectively as a US society thought that raising children in, you know, rural, semi rural suburban settings like led to better outcomes. It was healthier for the children. All, like all this sort of thing, like we all sort of bought into this and it slowly evolved into what we now call the American dream of owning a house with a yard. I, I do think that the house with a yard is not the American dream for as many families as there once was before. So again, in the post-war years, the nuclear family of the mom, dad, and kids was a very prominent form of household. But today that's not the case. Uh, there are many more single households, people living together, single parent with kids, divorcees, all sorts of you know different types of households. And a quarter acre lot with a house uh, is not always the best form of house for that those different fa- family types. So it's complicated because we're talking also about home ownership or sort of owning the place where you live and, and sort of the actual home itself. Condos are a form of home ownership. Uh, that's very compatible with ur- dense urban living. You know, maybe we see a rise in that as more people want to live in central cities and see that a quarter acre lot is actually a whole lot of work to take care of and pretty wasteful environmentally. I also think that uh, people will start seeing single family houses as one part of their lives, but maybe not their whole lives. 
for example, my personal story is I lived in downtown Sacramento with three kids up until last year when I had to move for a job. And we lived downtown. We didn't have a yard. We had three kids and it was fine. It was great. It was so much fun to live in downtown Sacramento. We are now living in a house with a yard, a small yard, you know, and then once the kids leave, maybe we don't need to live in that house anymore, right? It might just be too much house for just two people to live in. And we can then move back into the city, for example. So there are lots of ways to think about homes and home ownership. I just think that the changing demographics uh, will make the house in a yard not such a high demand item. But I also do share your worry that making home ownership inaccessible to people or owning the place where you live will result in you know some possible financial issues down the line if we don't figure out ways to mitigate that and make sure people are finding ways to accumulate wealth in other ways. In my Sorry, work you're asking with, great questions here and I'm just all over the map. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I appreciate it. So in my work with local governments and, and speaking with local governments really across the country, it's interesting to hear that some of those more regional centers, and even I wouldn't call them regional centers, just regional areas that were traditionally overlooked because of the lack of economic opportunities are starting to grow again. Uh, you know, Upstate New York, we were chatting earlier, Dave, has growing for the first time since 1950 and obviously Texas and Colorado and northern Washington and all of these places are are really exploding with the growth of remote work. Do you have any thoughts on these macro trends and what that might lead to in the urban planning space in the next 10, 20, 30, 50 years? Yeah, this is an interesting question. It's tough to know. This is one of those areas where planners are doing their best to forecast, but we're also sort of in the middle of this inflection point brought on partly by COVID-19 but also, yeah, the slow exodus away from more expensive metro areas into more affordably priced metro areas. So I think one of the interesting things we may begin to see at a very nuts and bolts level is new houses that have a built-in office space. I think we've seen much higher demand for places in homes or renovating homes to include a workspace because I think we're going to see more people working from home even after this pandemic is over, especially if they're working remotely. You know, they might have a, their central office might be in San Francisco, but they live in Boise or Helena or someplace like that. So that sort of at the very nuts and bolts level, that could be happening. We can start seeing that. And I think if we see that happening, we'll know that this is going to be a long-term trend because we're literally building it into our houses. Now, in terms of other city planning related issues, I think it'll be interesting to see if these regional centers that are receiving a lot of tech workers or remote workers, people that can work remotely, start developing their own nodes or clusters around the industries that they're working remotely for, I think that will be a sign that you know these cities are really taking advantage of this opportunity. I mean, absolutely, you know, there are some benefits to these cities, these regional centers by attracting remote workers. But in other ways, they're seeing a lot of downsides. Talk to people in Montana, their housing prices are going through the roof as people are working remotely from places like Seattle and San Francisco. So that's a downside. So all the locals there don't view these tech workers or these remote workers as an asset because they're just driving up the cost of housing. And Montana is a beautiful place to live regardless of who's living there. So it's not like these remote workers are adding a ton of benefit, unless you're maybe like a local coffee shop or something. So there's a downside there. But if they can start creating uh, entrepreneurship around those tech workers and maybe more of those tech workers are sort of based in those cities and sort of have self-sustaining industries or economies around those, I I think you could start seeing more actual benefits there. But I am a little bit wary about those cities just sort of receiving tech workers, but they sort of all still report to a major city somewhere else. 
I'm going to ask you a bit of a, a lightning round question. Um, so let's yes, take away all of your kind of professional and familial economic commitments that you have. Looking at, let's just keep it confined to the US, looking at it through your specific paradigm of values and principles that makes a city livable, where is the ideal in the US and where is a place that you really are thankful that you don't live? So, you know, take, setting aside all my professional, you know, where I want, need to be or I want to be, I, I think just my favorite cities are the cities where the general public really seems to be engaged in planning and has a really progressive vision for the future. I've had the opportunity to live in Portland, Oregon for a time, and I feel like that city best represents that ideal. I lived there 2005, 6, 7 era, and that was a really magical time uh, because prices were still relatively low, but people in Portland were really tuned into planning unlike any other place I'd ever been and still have ever been. They knew that a lot of these decisions that were made in the past has led to them being a very unique city. Things like uh, shutting down freeway construction in the 1970s and building light rail, having an urban growth boundary, a regional government, uh, you know, all of these decisions made in the past gave a lot of the citizens there a sense of pride, like we're doing something different. We're pro-bike, pro-walk, even before it was cool. That's how hipster Portland is. You know, they were even doing bikes before it was cool. That was just a really fun atmosphere to be in, uh, where everybody sort of had this shared vision of like, we're doing things differently and better, and it's really infectious. So a place like Portland to me, plus the weather, I actually love the rain. So Portland to me is one of the places I would love, you know, dream to live in again. I think in terms of actual built form and urban design, I always love coming back to Washington, D.C. The density there is perfect. They don't have the tall buildings, uh, but they still have enough density to support a heavy rail metro system. So like a top of the line, I mean, the, the Washington metro has issues, but like from a U.S. perspective, it's a pretty good metro system. So they have this great transit, great uh, streetscape, great buildings. Uh, it's just an awesome city for to visit. It's, of course, expensive, but... If I could live anywhere, that would not be a bad place to land. So Portland and D.C. are two of my favorite cities in the U.S., but I must admit I've not been to every single city in the U.S. Now, you asked me what city I would not want to end up in, and you know, I find that there are good areas in most every city in the U.S. I lived in Sacramento for a time, and when I moved there, people were like, oh, Sacramento? Like, that city sucks. <laughs> you know, it's, People in California see it as like a cow town with a state capital. But I found it to be downtown Sacramento to be incredibly walkable. It's got a nice grid, super leafy. The trees are amazing. And it was just an excellent place to live. So I don't want to count any city out. <laughs> there are probably good places in every city. You know, maybe Phoenix just for the climate alone. Um, <laughs> but I like to give every city a shot before counting them out. My uh, my manager actually lives in DC and, and constantly is raving to me about it. So I'll I'll have to edit your answer out so he doesn't have something else to hold over me. <laughs> as a uh, as a local government leader, this might all sound great, uh, but we know that in reality, change happens really slowly. And, and we've talked about that earlier in the podcast. What's some low hanging fruit from a, a planning and a city management perspective that leaders, maybe even in resource strapped communities? can begin utilizing and promoting in their own communities to, to begin to make steps toward healthier and more sustainable communities? I think one thing that cities can do is if they've had a plaza program or an outdoor dining program as a result of the pandemic, just leaving it in place <laughs> is a pretty low-hanging fruit thing. It's essentially doing nothing or finding a way to transition it into a long-term strategy. Here in San Luis Obispo, they've decided to make it long-term 
And that requires a few changes, allowing restaurants to essentially control public space that used to be parking or sidewalks requires now requires the restaurants to pay the city a fee for that right to do that. They didn't have to do sort of in the emergency COVID time. So that was a transition. But you're seeing cities, there's a city up the road for me, Paso Robles, which they just got rid of their outdoor dining program. They're like, pandemic's over, cars come back. And that seems to me to be a little short-sighted because in a lot of these cities, it's been incredibly successful. And any steps we can take to reduce the car domination, especially in our downtowns where it seems particularly not a great fit, any step we can take like that is a positive one. And it's a low-hanging fruit. So just keeping the outdoor dining around is an easy one. I think other low-hanging fruit is just not doing, not making things worse. (laughs) So uh, we're seeing a lot of freeway widening projects popping up, like I think in Austin, they're talking about it, uh, in other cities. And we just saw the passage of a new transportation bill out of Congress, which does allocate money towards freeways, unfortunately. So just not building the extra lanes is something cities can do. Don't do anything. Uh, even in the city of Portland, my, my beloved Portland, they're considering widening I-5. Why? I mean, at this point, any new lanes of freeway traffic is propelling us further off the cliff towards climate disaster. Any step we can take to just at least not do any worse uh, than what we're doing now is a good one. Uh, I look at low-hanging fruit as being, at this point, don't do no harm. And then we can start then looking at ways to improve. Very true. So we have a traditional closing question here on City Hall Stories. It's pretty simple. And I'm interested in your answer because you don't actually work on local government. But Dave, what's one accepted truth of local government that you've heard that you think is incorrect? Yeah. So I think that there's a perception in the public that working in local government is like a cushy job where you just sort of don't do any work and get your taxpayer funded paycheck. And I found that at least in the city planning profession, amongst all the professionals I've worked with, they work incredibly hard and do so much work and wear so many hats. And they're often asked to put out fires, not literally, you know, they do so much and they're driven not by money because the money's often not that great, but by a sense of service and duty. And uh, I applaud local government planners. They they do so much. I had, I worked with a city planner on a general plan project And, you know, he had just come back from a meeting on doing a smoking ban in their community. So a city planner is working on a smoking ban one second and a large scale, you know, 30 year plan for the city, you know, the next hour. So it's amazing the the work that planners do trying to make their communities better. And they're not just sitting on their butts collecting a paycheck. So, yeah, go local planners. (laughs) Can can confirm uh, from experience. So, Dave, I love the energy you bring to an incredibly important topic that barely gets the focus that it should, given how important it is to our quality of life. thought this was a, a fascinating conversation. I think we'll give our listeners a completely different perspective on their own streets, their own cities as they drive or, or hopefully cycle around. So thanks so much for your time. Thanks for having me. It's me again. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed it, leave a rating on Apple Podcasts and connect with me on LinkedIn. See you soon.